Hello everyone and welcome to In Conversation with Lisa Berg. Thank you firstly for downloading this podcast and thank you also for all of the feedback we're getting. It does really help to have your thoughts and ideas. If you have the time, please do take a minute to leave a rating with iTunes or the like as that will help plant the seed of this podcast within the plethora of podcasts out there. Now, today I'm really happy to be joined by a very familiar face on the Luxembourg scene. He is Paul Schunenberg. Welcome, Paul. Hi. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you here. You're a native New Yorker, but you've lived and worked in Luxembourg for 28 years, I think. That's exactly correct. I came in September of 1992. Quite a lot of change you will have seen then in Luxembourg. I agree. I jokingly say there were horses still on the street when I came. You couldn't find a, a movie theater or a place to go shopping on Saturday after, after lunch. The world has changed a lot, but still in many ways Luxembourg has remained the same. So within that time, almost 30 years of your life here in Luxembourg, you're probably best known now for your role with AmCham. Tell us about the American Chamber of Commerce here in Luxembourg, what you do, its origins, your role within it. This year, well, actually we've decided we're going to celebrate in 2021 our 25th anniversary. What happened a number a year uh, years ago was that Clay Constantino, who was the U.S. ambassador at the time, called in the American companies that are located in Luxembourg for a meeting. And of course, they all came. And he said, look, I know that when you guys have a problem, you call the prime minister's office and you ask him to go ahead and fix it. He said, I need to tell you going forward, that's going to be more difficult to get approval to do. The world is going to get more complicated. So... I really think that you should go ahead and set up some kind of umbrella organization you can all hang out in and use that will be a representative body to represent your interests with the government and to facilitate arrangements. And he said, my other ambassador colleagues and I in Europe have been discussing together, and we've decided that we want to recommend to all of you that you create uh, local chapters of the American Chamber of Commerce in all of our respective countries. And uh, that will be, first off, you know, to help you get organized and have some representative organization that can speak collectively for you. It doesn't mean that you're not going to go to the government when you want to get patted on the back for doing something good, like hiring 400 more people, but... I expect that if you have some bad news that you want carried, you'd rather somebody else carry it rather than you carrying it yourselves. And he said, and in addition, you also need to start getting concerned about what's going on at the EU level because the commission is going to get more important. You need to be concerned about what's going on, concerned about Luxembourg's positions, and you need to start doing a little bit of lobbying at EU level. So again, if you set up an American chamber affiliate in Luxembourg, and if the other American companies in Europe do that in the other countries, and you create a federation of American chambers of commerce in Europe, that could, on a long-term basis, be a really good thing. So they did. So you have the EU links, and you have that breadth of an organization which can help with lobbying your interests. So who can join? Anybody. That's one of the things that we did. We did an analysis and said, you know, at any given point in time, there are 
100, 120 American companies in Luxembourg. Sometimes some of them are here for more discreet reasons and they don't necessarily want a lot of publicity, but you know, there are a limit to how many there are. We did a survey of the members and said, tell me what you like, what you don't like, what you want to keep, what you want to get rid of. This is your chamber, not mine. I want you to be happy. And they said, well, to be honest, we don't really particularly want to go on trade missions to the U.S. because our company sent us over here to do business in Luxembourg and through Luxembourg, through the rest of Europe. If we come back to the U.S. on a trade mission, they're going to say, what are you doing here? I sent you to Europe to do business. Get back on the plane. Go back and do your job in Europe. We want a Luxembourg-centric organization. Luxembourg is warm and welcoming, but it's not necessarily completely easy to do business in. So we want four things. We want networking in English so that we can meet each other in a place that we can share information. And we want to meet other international players and government officials, preferably doing networking in English. Number two, we want information about how Luxembourg works so that we know who to go see, who not to go see, what to say, what not to say. Yeah, we can read the laws, but it's the between the lines stuff that is a little bit difficult to figure out around here sometimes. Third, we want problem solving. Because it may be, oh, well, gosh, they do it better in Denmark. Oh, they do that better in Spain. We'd like to be able to do some research to find solutions for things which we'd like to see a little bit more business-friendly and better. Then, of course, we'd like to have some amount of lobbying with the government in order to explain our positions and what our thinking is in a collective way and to see if we can be agents for change to go ahead and continue to work to make Luxembourg a more attractive place for international business to be located. So that's what we decided to do. And when we did that, I said, okay, great, we'll do that, but then we'll have to make some structural changes. The first thing we'll have to do is we'll have to gradually create committee structures so we have subject matter experts who can prepare white papers, who can provide information about how things work, who can help solve the problems when we want to make something a little bit bigger, and all those kinds of things. You know, in truth, I didn't mind being the talking head that goes to see the government, but the first time I get it wrong, it'll be harder for me to get invited back the second time. And the other thing was, I said, we've got to get bigger. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, right now you guys are an American club, and that's fine. But if I go to see the government and I'm coming on behalf of 85 companies, which was what it was at the founding, even if they're American companies, which I'll agree are respected and well-treated, I'll be invited in for a cup of tea, but I'm not going to be invited to stay for lunch. If you want us to have a certain degree of clout and influence, then I need to represent a bigger crowd. I need, when they're looking over my shoulder when I'm talking, to see an angry mob outside that looks like they're serious. So I said, we're going to have to get bigger. And they said, oh, okay, well, how are you going to do that? And I said, well, I've thought about that a little bit. And you know, there really aren't any more American companies, particularly that we can attract. We've already got them. If somebody new shows up, we'll, of course, go to them and make a pitch. And presumably, we think we'll have a good chance of being successful. But there are a lot of international companies in Luxembourg who are using Luxembourg uh, as a headquarters location. And an awful lot of them use English as a primary or a major business language. And I bet if we went to them and said, hey, look, we're an international chamber of commerce with an American affiliation. We're interested in people who share our values and who are interested in networking, information, problem solving, and a little bit of pleasant lobbying with the government. And if 
these other companies want to come and play with us, we will tell them that they will be very warmly welcomed and treated equally to anybody else. We don't care what color their passport is. We care about their values and the quality of their hearts. So that's a long answer to your simple question, which means anybody can join AmCham so long as they're a good company in, in good standing that uh, shares common value with us and wants to do the things that the rest of our memberships uh, want. And I'm extremely proud the way that has worked out. Our demographics have come to the point where we are 30% American companies, 20% purely Luxembourgish companies like the post office, and 50% companies from the rest of the planet. So we have been very successful with the help of our members and friends to become a melting pot organization speaking on behalf of international companies and international business. Just coming back to a couple of the points you mentioned in that uh, very full answer to my simple question. <laughs> the lobbying, the pleasant lobbying, the being an agent for change. Can you give me an example of something that you feel very proud of having succeeded in with the government and something that didn't quite work out too? You know, I'm a bit of an optimist. And if someone tells me no, my view is great. We're having a conversation. Oh, we can continue. Over our history, let me give you some examples of some success stories. You know, one of the challenges that uh, international companies face is that when they send people over here, many times people come with children. And the Luxembourgish schools can be a challenge for people who come from outside this environment. If you bring someone from Japan or from Norway or from China or from Russia or from North Dakota and you plunk them down in the middle of Luxembourg and they're a 13-year-old kid and you put them in the Luxembourgish schools, they will be lost. And they will probably lose at least a year worth of their time because they just simply don't have the multiple language skills. And the other thing is that the Luxembourg curriculum is a Luxembourgish curriculum, which is fine, but it's not an international curriculum that's readily transferable to other countries. So for international players who are used to moving around every few years and their children go from one international school to another international school where there is certain commonality and transferabilities of the curriculum, the Luxembourgish schools, no criticism of the Luxembourgish schools, but they're not a good fit for the international community. So we have the International School and we have St. George's as the two principal English language schools. And then we have the wonderful French Lycée for the French community. That's fine. But there's the question of, of the cost involved. And I remember when we were having the financial crisis a number of years back, there was an issue about, oh, it's companies are under some pressure to go ahead and do everything that they need to do. So I went to talk to Andre Gretton at the time, who was the Minister of Economy. And I explained to him... I said, look, let me tell you from our point of view. We have international people who are here who are very generously paying high taxes because they have good jobs. But they and their countries, are, who also pay good taxes, by the way, too, are struggling a little bit in the situation that we're, that we're in. And they're trying to figure out how they control their costs better by reducing their costs. I said, one of the issues that keeps coming up is the issue of English language schools for their children. Because... It's difficult for them to put their children in the Luxembourgish schools for the reasons that I, we just discussed a few minutes ago. But it's not a perfect international fit. And it's expensive. Government is supposed to provide services to people who pay taxes. And it happens to be the case that our constituency, which is paying very good taxes, is not able to use the school system, which is a principal thing that they would like to use. So we would really appreciate and we would really ask 
and encouraged the government as a pro-business gesture to agree to provide some measure of subsidy for the private schools, which are necessary in order for the Luxembourg economy to continue to thrive and prosper. We pushed that with um, Minister Gretton, who I hugely, hugely respect. And the net result was that the government agreed to go ahead and give subsidies to the private schools, which continue to this day. Now, I would argue today that the level of the subsidies, perhaps it would be kind if they were raised a little bit higher (laughs) because costs continue to go on up. AmCham doesn't necessarily go around tooting its horn, but I have to say, if you are uh, a company that's trying to figure out the cost of sending your Uh, the children of your employees to the International School or St. George's or the French Lycée, you can quietly thank us for being the ones who were the original people who advocated and arranged for there to go ahead and be a subsidy for that. That's a positive. Yes, I've taken it all in. I'm listening listening intently here. (laughs) That's that's a positive. And um, in terms of negatives, again, my view is we're having a conversation and I'm glad we're having the conversation. So long as we continue to have the conversation, it's a work in progress. Sometimes I will admit that Luxembourg works a little bit slower than maybe me as a New Yorker would like. And maybe sometimes working slower is not necessarily a bad thing. I would prefer to say that I have no criticisms um, in, in that regard. The, the other thing that I think we're also happy about lately is that um, during the coronavirus, we have very quickly transitioned to a combination of uh, interval working and working from home. And this has been very effective and I think has helped with the relaunching of businesses at the same time protecting the employees. But there's a challenge associated with that. Homeworking only works because we have so many people who live in Belgium, France, and Germany. It only can effectively be done if there's an understanding about the exemption from French, Belgian, and German taxes for people who are working from home. If the governments of France, Belgium, and Germany start taxing the companies or the individuals who are doing heavy amounts of homeworking, which is their right under existing legislation, that becomes problematic. So we had brought that up early as part of the dialogue as being a very serious issue of concern, and I'm very, very pleased. I'm delighted, and all compliments to the government of Luxembourg announcing last week that they have made arrangements with Belgium, France, and Germany to extend that freedom from taxation for social charges and for income taxes until the end of the year. My hope would be that this will lead to a permanent solution on an ongoing basis, because I think this homeworking combination where people spend some time working from home and some time working in in the office has been very good for work-life balance. I think it has reduced the amount of traffic on the roads, and I think it's been um, a good thing. I've heard from managers that they are able, they're getting more involved and they're doing things a little differently and it's working with them with the employees. They feel like they're better informed. Their employees are more relaxed. Seems like we've worked out a good solution, but it only will continue to be able to work if we can continue to, companies right now simply can't afford to pay extra taxes or extra social charges for their employees who live in surrounding countries. And I'm sure those employees don't want to take on the burden of paying those bills themselves. So that's a longer term thing, but at least we have the exemption until the end of the year. And my hope 
and our wish and our gentle lobbying, if you will, will be for that to be continued to be dealt with as a long-term issue, hopefully finding a good solution. Well, I love the way that you've changed <laughs> my request for something that hasn't quite worked into this longer term project where there will be a positive solution. If nothing else, you have immense stamina. Speaking of which, immense stamina, do you feel you've been CEO of Amcham for too long, chairman and CEO? Well, you know, I serve at the at the pleasure of the members and every five years they, up till now, have been kind enough to go ahead and to re-elect uh, re- 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 <laughs> me. I don't own the position. It's a privilege and it's an honor. And I sometimes get invited to really nice parties and really nice embassies receptions, which is great. But I don't own it. I view this as being an opportunity for me to serve. Arguably, I'm in the third stage of my life. And I'd like to think that um, I'm fortunate to have a position where I can add value as opposed to staying home watching television and waiting to die. We internally, on an ongoing basis, are discussing and trying to develop people. And I have no desire to go away and for the organization to fall apart. I would like to leave the organization in, um, in good hands. The fact that I've been around for a long time, have a pretty good reputation in most places, know a lot of people, and have a historical knowledge of what's been done is very useful to the organization. And I would prefer to think that I have a fairly young and enthusiastic outlook on life. So I would not like to be discriminated against because of my age, but I also don't think that I own it. I always have kind of thought, you know, at some day, some young tiger is going to come along and take the old tiger on. And when the young tiger um, bloodies up the old tiger and demonstrates that they can go ahead and deliver the bacon, then the old tiger can leave in harmony knowing that the organization's in good hands. Well, until but, that animalistic but, but I'm, war. But I'm still going to give them a run for their money when they, <laughs> if I get challenged. I'm not quite sure they'd know what they were taking on, uh, <laughs> given your military background, which we will come to. But just to finally chat slightly more about AmCham, in the last five years, it has been in the headlines for various reasons. I'd like you to tell us about that in your own words, from your point of view. Well, I have always been proud of AmCham as an organization to serve. Actually, what happened was when I left my employment at NATO and went to work uh, in an HR role at uh, Clearstream, that um, I thought, ah, you know, if you've been successful, you should give something back. Let me look for a local organization that I can volunteer to go ahead and support. And there was a three-year-old American Chamber of Commerce at the time. So I sent them my CV and a cover letter, and I offered to volunteer. And I certainly made it clear that I wasn't looking to be compensated in any sort of way. I just was looking for some organization that I can support as a desire to be helpful and to give back. And they asked me to go ahead and set up a committee, which I did. And apparently did such a bad job doing that that the next year they invited me to be the chairman and CEO. And subsequent to that, every five years, that has been extended. I'm very proud of the opportunity I've had to go ahead and be associated with AmCham in that regard. Thought that I was consistently doing uh, a good job. The Grand Duke has made me an officer in the in the Order of Merit. I've won a number of awards uh, over the years, and uh, Delano has consistently elected me one of the more important people in Luxembourg. So I thought I have been doing a good job and happy with our members and 
books are audited every year by competent auditors and that everything was staying within the rules and everything was going along fine. And then uh, one morning, uh, we got a phone call from um, a radio personality asking if I had a comment on a, um, a news report written in one of the German magazines in Luxembourg. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't comment on it. I don't know anything about it. And I asked them if they would send me a copy of the article, which they did. And it was, I think, a full-page picture of me and at least a full-page article accusing me of some financial irregularities focused on EU projects and, and things like that, which we were involved in. And I was totally shocked because it came out of the blue. And um, I was, like I said, I was totally shocked. Uh, no one had contacted us ahead of time saying that they were looking at something and there had been some issues that were raised or anything. It was totally, we were totally shocked. I got together with um, the executive committee and said, okay, how do we want to, you know, to uh, handle this? And I was honored and pleased that the executive committee said that they did not believe any of the accusations, that uh, they had confidence in me. And they said, but let's go through a process of investigating. Let's not shoot from the hip. And I said, well, I want to have external forensic auditors coming in. I want all of this stuff audited. They said, we agree. Just going back to the accusations, allegations, where could they have come from? I don't have any direct knowledge. The only thing I can anecdotally suggest, perhaps as a correlation, is that um, I had terminated a contract for fault for an employee that we had discovered was involved in what we considered substantive financial irregularities. The allegations internally investigated, reviewed by auditors, reviewed by external uh, HR lawyers, the collective conclusion was that we had no choice but to terminate the contract. So we did. And subsequently, we filed a criminal complaint with the public prosecutor against the person involved in this. And then purely coincidentally, perhaps, a month later, there was this report that came out, which again, from my point of view, gosh, I thought I was doing public good. I thought I was doing, you know, adding value and making a contribution and had been consistently honored for that. And then suddenly I get blindsided by a rather tough attack, which didn't really have a lot of details in it. It basically was suggestions and innuendos. And it's always difficult to defend yourself against suggestions and innuendos. We hired forensic auditors to go through five years of AmCham records, even though they all had been audited every year and passed every year, done some projects for the Grand Duchess in support of integration, uh, one of which I told you about uh, this morning for a language uh, course that we had developed. And we had done some projects with the European Integration Fund through the Ministry of Family. I think there's a misunderstanding how those things work. Usually what happens is you have an idea, you present your idea, and you present a budget. It's scrutinized. Then the organization that's going to provide funding agree that they will support the project. And then you get the right to spend your own money. And then at certain intervals, based on deliverables and based on audit reviews, you get reimbursed. There's a misunderstanding some people seem to have that, oh, suddenly you get a pocket of, uh, you know, a bucket of gold that you can go ahead and spend. No, you get the right to spend your own money on a pre-agreed project. 
with certain specifications of deliverables, and then that gets audited. And at the completion of the audit, then you get reimbursed for expenses. So it's very difficult, extraordinarily difficult, to go ahead and perpetrate any fraud in these kinds of situations with the legitimate and appropriate controls that these organizations set up to prevent against that. But the status as of now is that we have completed our audits by the Grand Duchess's charity and by the European Integration Thrun through the Ministry of Family and Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We have letters of acknowledgement um, and thanks for us for the work that we delivered. And we have copies of their audit analysis, which exonerates us of any wrongdoing. And every single penny of reimbursement that we asked for and documented as legitimate expenses have been reimbursed to us in our bank accounts. We did this forensic audit of all of our books for a significant period of time, and it has validated that all decisions that were made were made with the support and with the agreement and with discussion and approval at the executive committee of AmCham as appropriate, and in addition at the board as well. So all of those have now been completed and done and documented. In November, we're having an AGM, and we will go through all of that with all of the, the members at the AGM as well. I have no concept and no idea of anything that I could have possibly done wrong and I believe that that has been validated by the process that has been through. It's a long process. You know, it's hard to prove that you're innocent against vague accusations, but I, we have a file, and anybody who needs to have a look at that appropriately for people who have a legitimate right um, to have an interest in that. As you say, it's uh, fairly easy to have accusations printed even sometimes, what damage did that do to you personally when you found out about the article, the initial article? How did that affect you? Because you have been, you still are, this personality, well-known figure, well-respected by many people in Luxembourg. How did that affect you personally? And what have you had to do to change what you might perceive as damage to what had been a very strong reputation? You know, there's an old rule that says that um, if mud is thrown at the wall, even if it's washed off, the question is to whether or not there's still maybe a little bit that you can uh, change of coloration. There have been good things and bad things about this. So I was really, how did it make you feel initially? How did you, as someone who started off their, their working life as very hardcore career, military, air force, you have that, that rod of steel inside you. How do you cope with something that's it's blasting you emotionally and professionally? Emotionally, it was, it was difficult because I didn't then and I don't now have any idea what actual accusations might be. You know, I'm... You un- don't actually know? No, because this was apparently, well, the newspaper article is makes allegations, but it doesn't really... And as I said, we've gone through the audits, we've done everything. You know, the people that we did the work for um, are more than happy with what we did and have, we passed the audits, we've been reimbursed the fund. I guess that speaks for itself. You know, there's really nothing else I need to say about that other than they gave us the money and they said, thank you. Hello. You know, I think that that pretty much covers that. Obviously, this was hugely embarrassing for me because I didn't think I had done anything wrong. And I didn't understand. Why me? 
You know, why is this happening to me? Gosh, I'm a good guy. You know, I'm working hard. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Da, 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 da. I considered the, the possibility of stepping down with immediate effect at, at AmCham for the good of the organization, because I believe in the organization and I want it to continue to be successful. And I was discouraged from doing that because I was told, you are very important to AmCham. We don't believe the accusations against you and we need you. So that was good to be told that. And that gave me a focus for going ahead and, and moving forward to do my job every day at AmCham, try and make AmCham better, hold my head up high, and try and make things work. In the process of that, I also have to say, I've figured out who my friends are. <laughs> you know, and I there has been a huge outpouring of um, uh, people calling me up on the phone, um, talking to me, sending me emails and notes and so forth and so on. I've had a few of the ambassadors have said they also have been attacked at times by, now I guess the phrase is fake news. We shared a number of conversations with different people who had had some similar kinds of experiences where they felt like they were unfairly targeted. So that was helpful. But it has been, it has really been quite a struggle. Of course, I can say, well, okay, maybe I sell my house. Maybe I go to my house on the golf course in Florida and start proving my golf, my golf game. Maybe I go to one of the other pieces of property that I have and, you know, look around for something else to go ahead and do. But I felt if I had, I'm not a quitter. I am a little bit tough for the sake of AmCham and for the, and for Luxembourg for that matter, because I'd like to think that I'm a positive force for good. I'm not hugely important, but as a little fish, I'd like to think that I'm making my contribution to make Luxembourg a better place and to build bridges between the international community and the local community. So I said, no, okay, I will gut it out and I will see if I can make this work and we'll see what happens. I continue to serve at the pleasure of my colleagues in AmCham. I continue to try and do good because, as I said, this is the third phase of my life. But it was, it was emotionally very, very tough. It was very, very tough emotionally. Thank you for explaining that to us, because I'm pretty sure anybody attacked in that way and not everyone knows what it feels like. And Luxembourg is a small place. I'm sure that comes to bear as well on you. You've just mentioned that you have property in different parts of the world. I know you have a few places in America. Why is it that you've chosen to remain here in Luxembourg? Luxembourg really is cool. <laughs> Through my life, I've had the opportunity to live relatively internationally. Don't forget, I come from New York. Last time I checked, New York is a relatively international place to begin with, probably the most international place in the United States. And then I've moved around a variety of different places, and basically I've pretty much lived all over the world. And my feeling is that as you grow into living an international life, when you go back to the place where you originally came from, you wake up the next day and you realize, well, gee, I love this place and I love the people who are here, but it's not in stereo. It's not in brilliant 3D color. It's a little bit flat. It's a little bit black and white. It's a little bit two-dimensional. Whereas an international life is three-dimensional. It has much more of an envelope of richness associated with it. So I have decided I like living in an international environment. Florida is nice. Weather's good, golf is fun. But when I go to Florida, my wonderful neighbors, who I dearly, dearly love, 
the things that they think about and that they talk about that are occupying their lives aren't as broad a spectrum as the things which I find interesting and stimulating, which are actually more international. So Luxembourg is an extraordinarily international place, but it's small enough so that it can still feel comfortable. In that regard, I think it's very special. I think the Luxembourg people deserve to be considered extraordinarily special too. I can't think of any other place on the planet that I'm aware of where you can have at least 50% of the population. And I know during the day in Luxembourg City, it's over 60% of the people walking around and occupying space are non... The United Arab Emirates, 15%. Uh, yeah, and Dubai too. But I'd rather live in Luxembourg than I would live in Dubai or the United Arab Emirates. So Luxembourg is a special place. I also, as a guy who likes driving sports cars with the top down, I will note that in 10 minutes, I can leave the office. And in 10 minutes, I'm driving through forests, looking at cows in the distance, playing the Beach Boys loud with the top down. I can't do that in most other major cities that I'm aware of that might be interesting places to go ahead and hang out a little bit. So I consider myself extraordinarily fortunate to have found Luxembourg, to have the opportunity to continue to live here, to have enough income that I can afford to go ahead and to, to live in this extraordinarily, extraordinary place in the heart of Luxembourg, even to the point now where I'm starting to take Luxembourgish lessons. Well, after 28 years, why not begin? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Actually, speaking of neighbours, you spoke about your neighbours in Florida. You also once told me about a neighbour you had here when you were, I think you, you'd moved over here to work with NATO and um, a dog appeared in your garden. Ah, I originally came over here. I was involved in NATO uh, activities. I had a nice house in Capellan where I could walk to the office, which was lovely. And I had a little bit of an extra accommodation so that I could pay to have a little bit of a bigger house. And as a single guy, you know, how much space do you need if you're a single person? So my house was designed for a little bit of entertaining. I had a neighbor who had a big dog, and the big dog seemed to like my yard pretty well. So occasionally the dog would come over and occasionally I would take the dog back. And when, the, when I took the dog back, I was very well treated by my neighbor. Now, I'm a military guy, and I wasn't focusing on much of anything other than NATO-relating activities. So my neighbor was very kind and very nice to me, and I reciprocated. But as New Yorkers, you don't necessarily intrude on other people's lives, because the best gesture of respect that you can do in a crowded place like New York is respect other people's rights of privacy. So I was on friendly terms with my neighbor, but didn't get involved in, in his life. Anyway, one day I was having a group of people who were uh, coming over and we were going to have a working lunch meeting. And my neighbor pulled up in his BMW and got out and was going into his house and looked over and said, oh, looks like must be a NATO meeting today. And I said, oh, yes, sir. And he said, well, keep us safe. And, okay. And my, my guest said, do you know who that is? And I said, uh, oh, he's my neighbor, pretty good guy, but his dog likes my yard. And he said, no, 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 but do you know who that is? And I said, well, apparently I don't from your question, so who is it? And my neighbor was Mr. Juncker. And um, they were very impressed by the fact that Mr. Juncker was gently friendly. Not that he's not a wonderfully friendly guy. He is. He's a very friendly guy. Mr. Juncker was one of the first local people that I had met after I, I came to Luxembourg. And I had the privilege of 
of being his neighbor for a few years. And that's one of the other things that's special about, you know, Luxembourg. Um, He was the minister of finance at the time. He wasn't yet um, prime minister. But still, the fact that a normal person, which is what I would consider myself to be, could have the occasion to live next to somebody like that without there being guard towers all around, I think is rather extraordinary. Luxembourg makes so much of this small is beautiful. And, um, okay, this is a tiny small is beautiful story, but there are lots of small is beautiful stories about how special Luxembourg is. And for me, it's a privilege to be able to live here. And so you will have seen Jean-Claude Juncker's journey over the last 30 years too. Do you still keep in touch? Over the years, he has been kind to call me by my first name and and I have been respectful to call him sir. He has much more important things to do than be concerned about me. But over the years and during the time when he was prime minister, I have sent a, a letter on a subject or something else like that. Always has been professionally, positively received. And uh, on occasion, uh, when I've had the pleasure of being in his presence, either because there have been several times where he's been an AmCham guest or some other things. He has always been warm and kind towards me. But he's very important, and I'm a little guy doing the best I can to make a contribution, so I'm certainly not in the same league, but I'm appreciative of the small kindnesses that he has shown me over time. Well, I think it's been a very fruitful Coincidence, perhaps, that you lived next door to him and his his large dog, whatever it was. Um, we have been talking for a long time, even though I have so many more questions. I might have to get you back, Paul, to talk about other things. But just to leave it on a positive note and something that I think is very important for our listeners to be aware of is one of the offerings from AmCham, which is your link to languages and language learning across the spectrum of languages. Can you just finally tell us about that and how people can access this? Okay. You know, normally if you move to a new country, you might think, oh, I have to learn the local language. Oh, welcome to Luxembourg. You very quickly say, well, wait a second. There's French, there's German, there's Portuguese, there's Luxembourgish. Four languages that an Anglophone needs to learn to optimally integrate. That's a challenge. We had a number of people who over a span of some time said, you know, we've all tried taking language courses, but we're all busy working and we do a lot of business travel. And we've started out going to the language class and that worked fine for two weeks. And then the third week we had to take a business trip to Zurich. So we missed that meeting. And then when we came back, we had to get ready for a board of directors meeting. So we missed that. By the time you miss three or four lessons, you kind of back out and then you wait six months and then you start over again. And they were saying, it's taking us too long. You know, we have secretaries who work for us, who speak the languages and people who help us out. But it's hard for us to figure out how to go to classes to do stuff. And um, trying to do it from a book as boring as mud. We need some help. And we found that there's a little bit of body of knowledge that suggests if you simultaneously study languages that the similarities in structure that you don't see if you're just an English-speaking person studying Spanish, you don't see linguistic patterns. And there are certain reasonable numbers of linguistic patterns that are translinguistic, that fit into a variety of different languages. And if you know them, they can help reinforce the learning process. So it seems to be the case that if you simultaneously study languages rather than sequentially study languages, you learn the languages faster. 
That's interesting, particularly in a place like Luxembourg, where it helps if your Portuguese neighbor on the right and your French neighbor on the left and your German neighbor across the street to Luxembourg, you know, you f if you can figure out how to make it work. So we first uh, started out by doing the 50 most important words and phrases that you need to know. That was a success. We were asked to do more, so we did 100 most important words and phrases that you need to know. We said, let's do this in a modular format, beginner, intermediate, advanced, languages of Luxembourg. English, French, German, Luxembourgish, Portuguese. The five languages simultaneously. So that's, hello, guten tag, moin, bon dia. You've been studying your own course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've learned a little. <laughs> we decided, let's come up with practical words and phrases that as building blocks, people, and phrases are so important because if you just know words and you try and string words together, but you don't know anything else, no one understands what you're talking about. But if you understand phrases, then you can change words and phrases to get other phrases. So a combination of the two is, is not bad. So we did a beginner version. We did an intermediate version. We did an advanced version. And um, then at a certain point in time, the Grand Duchess put out a call and said, um, you know, we have a lot of refugees in Luxembourg now. If anyone has any tools that would be useful to refugees, please let us know. We'd be interested. So we went and knocked on the door. We have developed and are in the process of further developing a languages of Luxembourg thing, multi-languages, multi blah, 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 blah. And we think it'd be helpful for foreigners, particularly new people coming in who might need to know several languages in order to go ahead and get a job. And they said, well, okay, if you've already got it, what do you need us for? And we said, well... We want to turn it into an iPhone app and an Android app because we want people to be able to have it on their phone unlinked to a computer so that they can travel, travel, so that they can do it while they're walking in the forest, so they can do it while they're on a bus. And for asylum seekers and refugees who might be in refugee centers and might not have access to computers, they will have smartphones. And if they have the smartphones, we'd like them to be able to use that to help them get ahead if they want to get ahead. So we got approval from the Grand Duchess to go ahead and develop online versions and Android and iPhone apps for that. Got native speakers to go ahead and do all the recordings and got an IT guy to go ahead and put it together. And we developed the languages of Luxembourg. So you can go to the iPhone store or the Android store. And in both locations, you can download a five-language version of English, French, German, Luxembourgish, and Portuguese, or a seven-language version that also includes Farsi and Arabic. Well, there we go. For anyone who's bored in COVID times, you can yes. <laughs> download these and just brush up those language skills, which you're beginning to do yourself <laughs> after a 30-year reign here in Luxembourg. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for explaining so much about AmCham, your role within it, as it has hugely developed under your chairmanship leadership. Uh, I would like to come back another time and talk about your beginnings, which is so steeped in the military and everything you learned from that time and how you use that knowledge, invest that knowledge within education systems and transferable core skills. Thank you for your time today, Paul. And thank you for inviting me. <laughs> A great, great pleasure. Thank you for listening, everybody. Mm -hmm.